Uh, anyway, hey guys, I'm so glad you're here. I'm Pastor Paul, whether you're online or um, here in person with us, so glad that you've joined us. Before we dive in, um, not sure you're aware of this, but, but this year, 2021 in the year of our Lord, it's the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms, and that is where Martin Luther famously under the threat of excommunication and execution from the Roman Catholic Church, from the Holy Roman Empire, took his stand where he said, you know, here I stand before God, I can do no other. And in the process, God used that to really reclaim the gospel for the church, reclaim justification by faith for the people of God. And our original plan last year was as a church family to, um, for those who could, to take, a, to take a Four Oaks Reformation trip tour to Germany uh, to commemorate that 500th year anniversary. And that was all set to happen last summer. That was, of course, postponed. Um, but we've rescheduled it for next summer, June of 2022, and we're going to retrace the steps of Luther and Calvin, and I'm going to be uh, teaching through different doctrines of the Reformation, and we'll throw in some excursions and some German beer here and there, you know, of the non-alcoholic variety. But it, am I? Okay, here we go. We're still going with the microphone. Anyway, if you're at all interested in that trip or just eating a German lunch, okay, so two weeks from now, after the second service over in Gallery 14, uh, we're going to have an info meeting, answer any questions, talk about what that trip might look like, and the word on the street is that Luther might, might make an appearance. But uh, anyway, you'll have to see. Two weeks. Okay, but this morning, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Open your Bibles there. Interestingly, Paul is also fighting to reestablish the priority and the authority of God's word in the church in Ephesus. Remember that Paul had dispatched Timothy to go to Ephesus um, to deal with leadership and theological issues that really stem from the fact that the church has sort of gotten off into the ditch around this idea of speculative theology. And Paul talks about, it doesn't go into any detail, and I think for a reason, which I'll mention in, here in a second, but Paul refers to these as myths and genealogies and old wives' tales and rumors. And these were all things that were capturing the heart and mind of attention of the people in Ephesus that were pushing Christ, that were pushing the gospel, that were pushing the word of God to the periphery. Now, let, let me just say something because... Um, one of the things that I've done in an endeavor to help us understand kind of the dynamic that was going on in the church in Ephesus is that I've used the term conspiracy theory um, to sort of give us a 21st century parallel or equivalent. And let me just explain for a minute what I mean and don't mean by that. What I, I'm not, even when, when I use that term, I'm not even weighing in on what is or is not a conspiracy theory because I think on that number, many of us would be all over the place, right? One man's conspiracy theory is another person's the suppression of truth. And I get that, right? I'm using conspiracy theory as a generic term to refer to anything that disproportionately captures our attention as the people of God and diverts us from the highest priorities of the gospel of biblical truth and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and so my agenda in mentioning that is not to weigh in on what is a conspiracy or what is not, or what is true or what is not. And that relates to politics, elections, censorship, COVID policy, social media platforms. I tried to get everybody in that swath, okay, everybody. It's not the point. 
I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say, it's not the point. It can all be true. It can all be not true. It doesn't change what the people of God are primarily to be about. It doesn't dictate what our priorities, our energy, our attention, our focus should be as the people of God. And this is where I think 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 and following are going to be super helpful to us. And so um, I'm going to invite you to stand if you can and willing. And we're going to read 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16. So hear the word of God, Four Oaks. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in this text. And we need your grace as the people of God to run after the things you've called us to run after. Lord, we're, we're going to be reminded in this text that we need a place to plant our flag, a place to set our feet. And Lord, when we look at the world and our ever-changing and shifting culture, we realize the answer is not there. The answer is in you. The answer is in your word. And so, Lord, we, get, we pray that you would give us the grace now to hear, understand, and apply this passage. And it's in your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to note, Four Oaks, right off the bat in verse 11, the urgency that Paul is mustering as he is addressing Timothy. Look at verse 11. He says, Timothy, command and teach these things. Interesting. Tim, Paul's giving Timothy a command to command others. See, Paul is giving Timothy a charge. It's an urgent imperative. It, to use a football analogy, which that season can't come soon enough, right? Amen. All right. Paul is, a, is not a coach who's sending in his star running back to sort of juke and jive behind the line of scrimmage. He, he's not sending... That tells me something's happening. He's not sending Timothy in to, to avoid contact and juke and jive and, and, and dance around behind the line. No, no, he's calling Timothy to get the ball and to run right up the gut, to run between the tackles, to get the hard yards, to run straight ahead with authority. And he's telling Timothy this because what's at stake is of eternal highest spiritual importance. And you may say, well, what, what is that, Pastor Paul? Well, look at verse 16. And I think verse 16 is the main idea. It's the thesis of this passage, and it's where we want to start and unpack from. Let me read verse 16 again for us. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this 
For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, Four Oaks, but, but First Timothy is really a pastoral job description disguised as a letter. Have you noticed that? It's, it's written from the Apostle Paul to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, who is now the new pastor at the church in Ephesus. But lest you and I think this is irrelevant to us or, or oh, Pastor Paul, that, that's something you need to study or the elders need to study or the spiritual leaders of the church need to study, but that really doesn't have much to do with me. Uh, verse 16b should really grab our attention because listen to what it says again. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Elders of Four Oaks, pastors of Four Oaks, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save not just yourselves, but the people of Four Oaks. Now, now, regardless of what we think this verse means, and we are going to, to unpack that this morning, there is no question, whatever else it says, that Paul makes it very clear that what is happening within the context of Four Oak Church, what is happening as we gather together in worship, what is happening as we gather together in community groups, what is happening as we gather together as the people of God is of utmost highest importance, that somehow the purposes and the mysteries of the gospel and of God in our spiritual lives, for better or for worse, hopefully for better, as we'll see, are intermingled and intertwined together. That, that you know, we've heard this theme um, all throughout the COVID season. We're all in this together. That comes from High School Musical. All right, I'm relevant. I do, I do keep up with the culture, okay? Well, not only are we all in this together, but there, we're, we're, our, why, our lives are wedded, to be wedded, in the local church in such a way that God's divine purposes are carried out in salvation for all of us. And what we want to do this morning is to drill down into that and into verse 16. And we're going to do it by, by looking at two points, okay? First of all, we're going to look at Timothy's personal life and related to ours. And secondly, we're going to look at Timothy's pastoral life or his pastoral ministry. So there's a, there's a private dimension and a public dimension of what Paul is telling Timothy. Let's look first at Timothy's personal life. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Timothy, let no one despise you because of your youth. Now, it seems that as Timothy was coming into this pastorate role, at the church in Ephesus, he had two major challenges to his leadership. The first challenge is, let's, let's be honest here, the church did not call him. There was no congregational vote. There was no focus group. There was no info meeting. There was no, all in favor of Timothy, raise your hand. All the, all the, eye, the eyes have it, the nose don't. There's, there's none of that. Paul dispatches him. And, and Timothy is rolling into the scene as kind of an outsider. Now, it's not that the church didn't know Timothy. They most certainly did through the ministry of Paul. 
But, but, but he was someone who was coming in from the outside. As we would say in East Tennessee, he was a stranger to this here part, okay? It's right, what we say right before we get our shotgun and coonskin cap after you, right? Okay, that, that, so Timothy, people were looking sideways at Timothy. But the second thing we, we need to know is that Timothy was young. Now, this is not, so, this is not such a thing in our culture. Um, Timothy was in his mid-30s because in our culture, Let's be honest, we worship youth. Newer is better. We are the ultimate chronological snobs, as C.S. Lewis would say. If, if it, anything that came before must be put away, this is where progressive theology has its roots. We're always progressing. We don't know towards what. It's usually the flavor or the spirit of the age. But there is this built-in bias, okay, against things that are older. And in Timothy's culture, in Paul's culture, it was exactly the opposite. It was the young who were held in contempt. And it was scandalous to think that such a green, wet-behind-the-ears young man could hold such an important, powerful assignment. Let's remember, Timothy was coming in to lead elders who had been in that church for 20 years, Remember that Paul had gathered them up on the shores of Miletus. These were aged, wise men on many levels. Some were off the reservation, certainly. That's why Timothy was being set in. But you can see some of the obstacles that were built into Timothy's ministry. And it's going to be interesting. We find out what does Paul tell Timothy to do in response to all this. Look at his command. Let no one despise you, Timothy. Now, that word despise means don't let anyone think against you. Don't let anyone set up a spiritual obstacle in their minds to your ministry, Timothy. Don't let anyone set up a spiritual obstacle which will ultimately hurt them because it's going to be an obstacle to spiritual truth. Now, when we think about Timothy and knowing that he was sort of disdained, that is the word, how might Timothy be tempted to respond? How might you and I be tempted to respond to this kind of patronizing disdain coming from other people? In your, in your spheres of leadership, when people sort of bow up to you, when they're thinking or set their mind against you, how do, how, how do you respond for folks? Do you retaliate? Do, do you put someone down for their limitations? Do you gossip? Do you get aggressive? Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum, right, of the conflict avoidance spectrum. Maybe you just retreat. Maybe you just tap out. Maybe you just sit down and decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw my troops, so to speak. I'm not getting into the fray. Very interesting, Paul doesn't say either of those are options for Timothy, he actually gives Timothy a command, let no one despise. Instead, look back at the text, what does he tell Timothy to do? He says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That word example, it's the word we get type or model or pattern. And it's a reminder as a leader, in whatever sphere you find yourself in, people are always watching. People are always observing. Um, they're, they're, you, that's, that's 
part of the blessing and the liability and the danger of leadership, right? And it's interesting that Paul, in this sort of fivefold model, right, of speech, conduct, law, faith, purity, he mentions speech first. And I wonder why. Well, I think we all know why, right? I think we all know that our instinct oftentimes when people hold us in disdain is to talk our way out of it. And I can't help or talk our way into it. And I can't help but wonder if Paul has Proverbs ten nineteen, And what a great <laughs> proverb this is for the day, right? Boy, if we just tape this over our computer screens. When words are many, blessing happens. Is that what the proverb says? No. When words are many, are many transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise. What, what, what is Paul telling Timothy here? Timothy, don't defend with your tongue. Let your life do the talking. Doesn't mean passively standing by, but it said, in essence, Timothy, don't retaliate with your tongue, but get busy growing in your character. Get busy with living an exemplary life so that everyone might see your progress. And, and Paul's motivation in this is not to say, so, so, so they will give you all the accolades, Timothy. No, no, no. Remember, Paul's priority is the word of God. And he's saying, Timothy, live this exemplary life, not so people will think others, you know, great things about you just because but so that people will not be hindered unnecessarily in their reception of the word. Give them no room for accusation. Now, let me just apply this for a moment to all of us, okay? Because all of us, even though this is addressed to a pastor and elder, all of us are called to leadership in some arena, okay? At least one or two relationships, probably more. You're a parent. You're exerting leadership. You're a teacher, you're in a marriage, you're um, on staff, you're in work, you're in a ministry position. All of us have tentacles into leadership in some capacity. And understand, because all of us are imperfect, all of us are broken, none of us are Jesus, for all of us, our leadership comes with inerrant, built-in obstacles. There are built-in limitations to your leadership and my leadership that don't necessarily have to anything to do with character. For Timothy, it was age. But for you, for me, it might be your ethnicity or your geography, where you're from, or your socioeconomic status, where you come from. It might be your marital status. It might be your profession, your background, your experiences. Anything, any human man-made distinction that people can use to erect barriers to your leadership. What is Paul's solution? Double down on character, Timothy. Get busy growing in holiness. And this whole idea, if you want to understand in a lot of ways why we are where we are as a broader church evangelical culture in terms of scandal, 
the witness of the gospel and otherwise, let's be honest, we've just lost character. We just, at the end of the day, if we're brutally honest, just don't think it's that important. I mean, I know it's important, Pastor Paul, but, but, but I'm into gifting and flash. And we have been so, so, I think, far too willing as a culture, as a Christian culture, to entrust authority and platforms and ministries and leadership based almost entirely upon gifting alone. Isn't it interesting in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul talks about the qualifications for spiritual leadership, there is only one qualification that's related to gifting, and that's teaching. And that's not even solely what we are doing here this morning. Teaching meaning to be able to articulate truth and press it into people's lives and defend truth and doctrine and the Bible. All the rest of the character, all the rest of the qualifications are what? They are character oriented. There is um, a very well-known church movement uh, across the world. I won't mention its name. has campuses all over the world, has a powerful worship ministry. And it's very obvious as scandal after scandal has rocked that particular church movement that leaders were selected based almost entirely on how good they were with a microphone and how they dressed and their ability to connect with culture and celebrities. And Paul wants us to remember, and, and this is simultaneously humbling, but it's a great encouragement too, all of those things are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Do you know that Paul was a physically unimpressive specimen of a man, if we can use that term. How do we know this? Paul told us, right? We know that compared to the Greek orders of the day, he didn't have the, the cultural, um, he wasn't suave, right? He wasn't polished. He was just kind of this small Jewish teacher of the law, and, and he just wasn't that physically or rhetorically impressive. Let's remember in the Old Testament in the story of Balaam, that God famous, famously used what to preach a sermon? A donkey, all right? Make all your jokes that you want to at this point, right? Okay. It's a reminder. It's just God's little reminder without character. It doesn't matter how gifted one is or talented or skilled or persuasive. And the incalculable damage done to the gospel, the Christian witness, is evident to see. People ask me sometimes, Pastor Paul, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for the other elders, the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church? And here is what I would ask you to pray for us. Pray for our holiness. Pray for our faithfulness. Pray for our prayer lives. Because apart from the life-giving work of God's spirit wedded into public ministry, God says, it doesn't please me. It doesn't honor me. And so whatever capacity you find yourself in in leadership this morning, double down on character. That's Paul's admonition to Timothy for his personal life. Now, let's talk about what Paul tells Timothy related to his public life or pastoral ministry, and then also how that relates to us. Look at verse 14. Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now here, Paul is referring 
to some time in the past, we're not exactly sure when this was. It might have been during Paul's second missionary journey, journey through Lystra. But the elders of the church said, Paul, we have a young man who we believe has a call on his life to preach the word, to be a minister of the gospel. We vouch for his character. We vouch for his gifting. And now we're laying hands and we're sending him on his way with you, Paul. That's how Timothy got his start in ministry. We call this ordination. And apparently at his ordination, Timothy was charged with using his principal gift, which seems to be teaching. Now, the reason that we, that we know there was an issue here is Timothy apparently had been too reticent or too timid to use that gift. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious, right? Do not neglect the gift you have. Why, why would Paul have to say that? Because Timothy was neglecting it. Because Timothy, let's be honest, most of us are going to identify much more with Timothy than with Paul, right? Paul did not give um, a rat something, okay? Rats behind about what anybody thought about him, okay? At all. And Paul is the guy to come into the room, and he's that guy. He says that thing. He puts his finger right on it. Um, Doesn't mean he wasn't endearing. Doesn't mean that he wasn't a shepherd. It just means that... Paul did not have that man-pleasing gene in him, right? He could rebuke Peter, okay, the rock upon which Christ said, I'm going to build my church. He could rebuke him, no problem, okay? That's not me. I know it's not a lot of us. We're more like Timothy, timid Timothy, particularly in this culture, particularly when there are so many cultural pressures to keep our religion private. Keep it on the down low. It's fine if you want to believe that stuff in your heart. Just don't say it out loud. Just don't say it publicly. Um, Don't bring that into the square. And, And let's be honest, Timothy had been thrown into the lion's den, and he was struggling. And so Paul gives him very specific instructions about what he is to do. And here, I think in verse 13, we have one of the clearest pictures in all of the New Testament of what the corporate gathering was like in the church. Look at verse 13. He says, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, there's a sequence here. That word devote, it means to 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 have previous preparation in private for a task to be completed publicly. And so what he's in essence telling Timothy is, Timothy, I want you to study the scriptures, which for them would have been the Old Testament, and then probably some of the letters of the apostles, maybe even some of the gospels, certainly Paul's letters. I want you to study in private the word of God, Timothy, then I want you to come out and I want you to read it to the church publicly. And then I simply want you to teach it. I want you to explain it. I want you to expound it. And this is where we get this idea. And we get it in other places in scripture, for example, like Ezra, like Nehemiah. There's, you know, Acts 2. But this is one of those clearest places where, where, where we get understanding, get this idea for what we do, what we do here at Four Oaks. 
which is expository preaching or teaching. The word expository just means to expose. And it means that our main agenda when we gather as God's people, and that this, this should be whether it's for children, students, adults, community groups, Bible studies, we're not ultimately under interested in what I have to say or anyone else has to say. What we're interested in is what God has to say, which means that in expository preaching, the point of the message is the point of the sermon. See, sometimes as pastors, there's a great temptation to have a great idea and we spend all week looking for a text to match it. And in reality, it should be the reverse, right? One of the reasons we preach through books is so that God speaks to us, and what we're after is to make the point of our times this morning what God has to say. Now, oftentimes, that will take us into really uncomfortable places like First Timothy, right? Because Timothy has things to say about men and women, and the roles of men and women, and gender. And it's kind of like, ooh, do we, have to, do we have to go there, right? Or in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to a passage about slaves and masters. And it's like, oh, no, Pastor Paul, what, what are we going to say about that? I'm not going to say anything. I gave it to Pastor Scott to preach, okay? It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Scott did not appreciate that. No, actually, we're, that, that, that's not true. We're, we'll dive into it. But again, what, what does that have to say? What kind of relevance is that to us? And it helps you understand why we have the rhythms that we do. Why, as a general rule, we try to preach through books of the Bible or large sections of the books of the Bible. Because honestly, culturally, they're just things that, if it was up to me in my flesh, it would just be easier not to go there. It would just be easier to, to gravitate to the topics, the issues that I'm most comfortable with or that I know that you're most comfortable with. One of the reasons that we stand in the reading of God's word, it's not this trite, religious, ceremonial thing. This is based upon what most certainly was the practice of the New Testament church built on the synagogue model where the people would stand when there was the reading of the word of God. And it just simply symbolically states, we're not here to gather our perspectives and opinions. We're here to hear from God. And we stand under his authority. Now, there's several implications, and let me, let me point out a couple as we draw this to a close. When we talk about authority, and again, that is one of those bad words culturally. And we're having an ongoing debate about who decides what for whom and how. But we have to understand that the authority that's been given to the church, God's church in this day and age, in this life, is not an arbitrary authority. It is not an absolute authority. It's a derived or delegated authority. And this is true for any authority, whether it's pastors, elders, spiritual leaders, husbands, bosses, whatever. It's a constrained authority. It's an authority that is only valid to the extent that it is subservient to and submissive to the authority of God's word. God's word is to be the final arbiter of truth. Otherwise, we have spiritual chaos. We have theological tyranny. I mentioned Luther at the beginning of the sermon, and fundamentally, this is what the Reformation was about. A lot of times we think about the battle of the Reformation being oriented toward justification by faith and the gospel. That was simply the battle. The war 
was actually over who gets to make that determination. Luther said it's the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church said it's the church. And we have to remember the Roman Catholic teaching or theology is that those who come after the apostles have just the same amount of authority whether it's bishops or popes, as the apostles in the New Testament, they speak with the same authority they can. And this is how doctrines that are contrary to Scripture are spawned, whether that's purgatory or salvation through the sacraments or indulgences or the mass or things that we think are clearly anti-gospel in God's word. We have to remember that ultimately is rooted in the fact who is the ultimate authority. And we, we say unequivocally for Oaks, that is the word of God. Do you know that even the apostle Paul, who was an apostle, affirmed this? What did Paul say to the church in Galatia? He said, if anyone comes after me, let it be an angel, let it be a man, let it be me. And he preaches a gospel that is contrary to the word of God. It doesn't matter who it is. What does he say? Let him be cut off. See, even the Apostle Paul, the Apostles understood that it was God's word that served as the ultimate authority. Otherwise, truth becomes an ever-moving, ever-changing, ever-progressive, moving object. And for folks, there is no hope in that. There is no spiritual place to set your feet. There is no anchor for your spiritual life or my spiritual life. It's why we do what we do. So pray for us by the grace of God. Back to our original question, and we're going to be done. Back to verse 16. How does Timothy's commitment to keeping a close watch on himself and his teaching, how does this save himself and us? What does that have to do with us here at Four Oaks? Because we know what it can't mean. We have to use scripture to interpret scripture. Paul makes it unequivocally clear in context after context that salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is a gift of God. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save you. Parents, you can't save your kids. Kids, you can't save your parents. And listen, we all wish that we could, right? But it's a burden that we cannot bear as humans. Only God can save Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and Titus 2, that, that faith and salvation is by grace and grace alone. So we know that's not what Paul means. What Paul is pointing us to are the ways or the means by which God saves us. The ways and the means by which God carries us, perseveres us, protects us spiritually. It goes without saying that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it is because someone preached to you the word of God. Whether it's publicly, whether it was you as a child in your bed one night, or a Sunday school teacher, or a neighbor, or someone on your college campus dorm floor in your apartment, a mentor, a teacher, all of us, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because someone shared with us, someone 
told us. Even Paul in Romans 10, what does he say? How can people know unless someone tells them? This is the same Paul in Romans 9 who said, salvation is entirely under the sovereignty and authority of God. But see, Paul doesn't see a discrepancy here. He just knows that these are the means that God uses to save us and to bring him to glory. What are those means? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who wills and acts in you according to his purpose. Paul saying, Timothy, as you're bringing the people of God together, and as you are saturating the people of God with the word of God, as you're pressing down that word, and folks, whether it's here or in community group or in Bible study or in one-on-one relationships or friendships, that is a primary task we have as the people of God is to press his word down into every crevice of our souls. And Paul reminds Timothy, that's the way I work. That's the way I save. That's the way I sanctify. That's the way I carry people faithfully to the end. It's a reminder for us, Four Oaks, in this season. This is so important because as people have this ongoing debate about the church, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm not really sure about the church. This season has shown me that maybe I don't need the church. Maybe I can just watch the church, or maybe I can, I can, you know, I can download the church, or maybe I can relate to the church through an intermediary, the gather church. I, I, I don't know. And Paul wants to remind us in his words to Timothy that perseverance is not a private project. It's a communal one. It's one shared by the people of God together. And it's one that by God's grace, we want to commit ourselves to because we trust in the word of God when it says, when we keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching, we will be saved all of us, by the grace of God, working through the word of God and the people of God. Let's pray.